Hello there, I'm Paul Church, your host of Talent and Growth, the podcast dedicated to all things attraction and retention. I'm also the director of the Anemo Group. And today we are joined by Richard Clayden and Jeff Marlowe. And we're going to be talking around how to really understand what your workforce care about. And we're going to be dispelling quite a few myths around culture and values, which of course businesses place a lot of emphasis on. Um, Really interesting podcast, so I hope you enjoy it. And also, um, if you'd like to help the podcast, please do leave us a review. Please do like us. Please do subscribe. It really will help us. Hope you enjoy the episode. Richard, Jeff, welcome to Talent and Growth. How are you both doing? Let's start with you, Richard. How are you? Well, generally very well, other than a small accident yesterday where I uh, I cut my head and I re-sprained a wrist. But other than that, really well, Paul. Well, you're a trooper for doing the podcast. Thank you for being here. Jeff, how are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. It's fairly early over here on a Monday morning, so I'm not quite sure I'm fully um, in the world, but uh, we'll see as we go along. I'm with you, I'm with you, so I'm on my second coffee. Um, so, gentlemen, it'd be great just before we crack on with the topic today, if you could just give us a little bit of an introduction really into, into who you are, what you do. Um, so Richard, if you could give us a bit of an insight into your background, your career and your journey and what you're up to now, that'd be great. Uh, well, yeah, background is I, I started off really in communications, organisational communications, specifically soft communications, uh, cross-cultural communications, uh, ended up doing a PhD, uh, master's in that and then switching to a PhD in management. Uh, focused on um, researching sort of creative behaviours and toxic environments, uh, moved into into that sort of the field of teaching leadership and organisational behaviour, uh, and now run my own company. And, and Jeff, as Jeff, who you're going to ask the same question to, uh, contributes heavily to that company. Fantastic. Thanks for being here, Richard. And Jeff, how about yourself? Yeah, well, I started off in my sins as an engineer. Um, I did uh, pure maths, applied maths and physics at school and then electronic engineering at university. But the thing that really interested me was systems and how systems work. So things with feedback loops, etc. So a few years of doing that um, as a technologist and then decided, you know what, actually, you know, the technology is kind of OK, but the technologists are more interesting. You know, what makes them tick rather than what makes the technology tick? So um I'd worked for a couple of very traditional organisations, so British Aerospace and BBC and Engineering. Uh, and then I moved to Cambridge here, where I live now. Uh, I moved here in 83, joined a firm called Cambridge Consultants. Um, and although the name suggests kind of consultancy, management consultancy, actually what mostly the firm did was technology design and development work for organisations wanting to apply technology to their products and processes. So... Um, <clears throat> One of the clients uh, said he quite liked working with our people more than their own people. Uh, And could I come and help make their people behave more like our people? And so that got me started on how do you create cultures of innovation in organizations? I mean, mostly I was working with firms that were using high tech, but that then evolved into banking and all sorts of other industries. So that's what I've been doing for the last 30 years, 35 years now. Um, specialising in how do you create cultures of innovation, agility, adaptiveness, um, which of course in today's world has become much more mainstream than it was when I when I kicked off. Absolutely, and we're going to we're going to be using that word quite a bit today, culture, I think. And of course today we're talking about what the workforce is really looking for and what 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 they want. But um, I think it'd be good to kind of break down uh, the origins of business culture um, and the different types of that. So Richard, I don't know if you maybe want to kick off with that. Yeah, sure. I mean, we we forget that uh, the origins of business culture were Japanese, uh, East Asian. 
So when you when you hear of these sort of all these American companies saying, oh yeah, the culture is the greatest thing ever, up up until the nineteen eighties, nobody really talked about it at all, and and actually. Most of the most of the mainstream organisations were very resistant to the idea of, of doing any behavioural work, and they were much more focused on, on the sort of the hard stuff, strategy and structure and systems. Um, and they were basically the Japanese came from from left field and started out forming all of these organisations. Um, and there was a, a just a total uh, lack of ideas and, and, and um, creativity is how they were going to compete with the, the Japanese. And so there, there was a period that people forget about when the Americans were going to Japan and learning about, well, what are you guys doing to, to create these behavioral environments where we can, you know, that, 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 that allow your people to be super loyal, super engaged, really hardworking, uh, all, of the, all of the kind of things that, that a culture promises. And this was sort of taken out of Japan and imposed sort of back on the American system by, by um, a bunch of consultants at, at McKinsey, um, and you, you had sort of Stanford University were, were heavily involved, and it became a a, a big movement. And, and, and I think we forget the frenzied movement. I mean, there, there was a mass frenzy around it. One of the In Search of Excellence, which is one of the, the big books, is still one of the biggest selling business books of all time. Um, and and it's just a huge movement. And and, and let's create these these organizational conditions, these cultural conditions that, that get everybody excited and energized to be in the workplace. Um, and sort of the second half of your question is what are the three types? Well, you sort of had uh, the pre-existing uh, sort of high-tech culture that Jeff sort of got so involved with, which is this, these kind of cultures that look at what, what do engineers like doing and it is exploring and it's having fun. And it's this kind of high energy, high intellect kind of environment. That sort of was identified as already existing uh, in, in the States. But then you had two sort of other forms. And one of, one of them is the one that we see almost everywhere nowadays, which I would call the consulting culture or the consulted culture. And this is where you get, um, you know, you'll, you'll get the, the executive team going on a strategy away day and they'll do their value creation and they'll, they'll design what the culture should look like and then they'll hand it over to HR and say sort of implement that. That would be the sort of standard model. And the, 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 the other sort of one is more of a process than an actual culture. And this is where the cultures go from being evangelical. So this kind of high enthusiasm, high energy kind of uh, environment over a period of time as a company moves out of sort of startups into a mature, complex form. And all of that enthusiasm and energy dissipates and it becomes more of a, a control system, compliance based, um, fit based. And you can see the language shift over the years from this, this very language which was very exciting, talking about heroes and myths and rituals, to this new language of fit and compliance. Uh, and, and with the assumption that somehow fit and compliance still creates the same levels of energy that those old uh, colourful stories used to create. So that's a process rather than a type, but it's where a lot of organisations are now. Fantastic. Thanks, Richard. Jeff, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the... the, the what I've seen in organizations is, is the biggest challenges that they face in, in creating the kind of culture that they need for the future, which has more agility and more adaptiveness, more innovation, is that they've bought into this myth. Um, and Richard mentioned McKinsey. I mean, McKinsey were responsible for coming up with the idea that if you come up with a list of shared values uh, and somehow implement them or impose them or control people to, to align with them, then you get what you think you wanted from the ideas that generated the list. 
Um, and of course, in reality, what happens is most people just nod at the list and go, yeah, right, fine, and carry on doing what they were doing before. But the, but the biggest impediment that that then causes for organisations in terms of creating a future that is good for the organisation, the people they serve and, and, and the people who work there, is that the senior people kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, we've done culture, look, you know, it's on that list, you know, and, and they've got no clue about the fact that their behaviour and their attitudes permeate the whole of the organisation and therefore create a reality which is usually quite at odds with the espoused theory about what the organisation stands for. So you've got a list of espoused values that if you talk to people inside the organisation and you know you break the ice with them, they'll tell you what really goes on and usually there's a massive gulf between the espoused and the, actual, and the actuality. So there's a lot of um, history and origins behind the the term culture and where it's come from. But I, I feel just working in talent acquisition and recruitment that in the last few years, it's been a much more at the top of uh, top of agendas uh, and creating that perfect culture and the round of values. And it's been um, a big drive, in my opinion, is what I've seen. Where do you think this has come from, Jeff? Why do you think recently it's really kind of risen to the top? Well, I think you know, there's been a lot of talk about the war for talent. I mean, that's been going on for years. Um, and the idea that people, you know, people of a young, younger generation, so millennials and, and, and younger still, um, will only work for an organisation if they identify with its mission, with its purpose, with its values, what it's trying to do, that they, that they feel that it says something about them as an individual. So organisations have sort of been falling over themselves to try and attract those people uh, and so the PR spin of the engine around what we are and how we operate and you know what you can expect from us uh, I mean you only need to look in your LinkedIn feed well perhaps it's just my LinkedIn feed but you only need to look in your LinkedIn feed and see everybody jumping on every possible bandwagon whether it's uh, you know um, gender whether it's um, environment whether it's diversity equity inclusion I mean you know all these things like all of these organizations that have been around for 50 or 100 years that you know if you look at Glassdoor what it's really like to be there they've all put this veneer of, of you know we're a wonderful place to work on the surface in order to attract people because they feel they won't get the people they need if they don't do that the problem is if they don't actually embody what they're espousing then people join and very quickly they discover hello this isn't what I was uh, this isn't what I was sold and so they then you know get either depressed and demotivated, or they go somewhere else, um, which of course in a way is good news for the recruitment industry because it gives you lots of churn, um, but it may not create the most stable and productive organisations. Yeah, absolutely not. And Richard, anything else you've seen recently around this? Well, I think COVID played a part. So you know, the, the COVID has created a much more complex behavioural environment for people. Uh, and so managers, you know, we, we were moving away from this kind of behavioural um, way of understanding organisations. Culture had, had actually lost its, its, its shine a bit and people weren't talking about it so much. But because COVID has suddenly made the behavioural environment so much more complex, uh, senior leaders have been reaching back for, for behavioural levers and it's the only one they know. You know, they, they don't have the, the, the educational background or the, or the training or, or the experience very often to, to, to reach into the deeper behavioural stuff. Um, but they know behavioural stuff is required. So what have they heard of? What have they been involved with? Well, culture. So, so this shift back into, well, culture is going to be the answer to, to all of these challenges is, is, is largely because they've, they felt stripped of the tools required 
to to attract people, to motivate people, to to, to keep them well, to keep them uh, energetic, energized in these kind of environments, and also to keep them communicating well am amongst each other. So you've got this notion that that this one behavioural lever is going to do all of these jobs, and which which I think is is somewhat problematic. And is this culture? Um, or this emphasis on culture that's being pushed, is that conducive, Richard, to um, to a high-performing and happy workforce in the manner that many companies believe, do you think? Uh, no, I think it's. I think the research generally shows it's the opposite. Um, and again, I want to just, before before I go on, I want to highlight the difference between what Jeff would call future, future fit culture and what I'm talking about as, as the standard model. So that I, I, most of the research that I've seen around the world at the moment is people are not missing the organisational culture. And in fact, they feel... Um, freed up by, by working from home. Um, you've then got the pre-existing COVID research, which was already very clear that if, if you were a startup, high commitment kind of cultures uh, predicted getting to IPO successfully, um, because you could you, you are, you're hiring younger people for all of these purpose um, reasons Jeff's been talking about. They would come and join you and they would stay there for lower wages because they, they genuinely believe they were there to change the world. But when you've got these mature complex organisations you know, across many countries and many environments and many product lines, um, the research showed clearly showed that actually a high commitment culture predicted low growth and low profitability. You needed this this much more diverse understanding of behaviours in order to, to create the kind of value. So I think what, what we've seen over the last few years is that coming home and up to the pointy end where, where it's becoming very clear that, that there needs to be a behavioural shift. Um, Organisations have been left stripped of, of the, the, the kind of skills to, to be behaviourally excellent in, in a COVID, in the COVID sort of networked environment. Um, but they turned back to, to something that was already not working. Um, and and that's, that's the big challenge. I mean, people respond to these, to these espoused values on the walls with cynicism or apathy. They, you know, and cynicism, apathy you know, predicts depression and, and all kinds of um, low, low performing work um, endeavours. Cynicism perhaps is a little bit more protective, but, but you're, you're just, you remain cynical while you're looking for another job. Again, great for recruitment agents and things like that, but not necessarily what the company thinks it's doing. So, so you've got, I think you've got a lot of pre-existing evidence that it doesn't do what it says on the tin. So let's talk about values, Jeff. Businesses spend a lot of time working on these. Is this time is spent? Um, I think that the, the, the one word answer is yes. <laughs> the more complex answer is that it's extremely seductive, this idea of values, because we all know if we look inside ourselves, we feel that the things that really motivate us as individuals are our values. You know, are we able to align with the things that we deeply believe? Are we able to, to, to self-actualize? Are we able to bring the best of ourselves into the things that we're doing in our day-to-day -day work? Um, and we know from experience, even if that experience has only been fleeting, that when the answer is yes, we feel more motivated and engaged. And so it, it's a kind of natural, logical leap to say, oh, if only we could get everybody like that all the time, that it would, that it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Uh, and often, you know, there is that um, genuine desire to create a workplace where people really would, would love to be there. You know, I mean, maybe a lot of senior people, yes, they've also got their eye on the needle in terms of profitability and performance. But, you know, no one really wants to set out to create a horrible, unpleasant, nasty, you know, 
self-destructive environment in which people work. But, but the big problem is I think people don't understand what culture is. I mean, every organization has a culture. It, it's almost never the thing that they intended it to be because culture is emergent. Culture is, on the simplest level, it's when you've been in an organization or in a particular department or division for a few weeks or maybe a couple of months, you pick up the way we do things around here. You pick up all sorts of subtle clues and signals and signs and um, you know, you're tapped into the vibe of the place and you think, oh, you know, they say do that, but I saw that person do that and it got them into trouble. And yet this person over here seems to be behaving in a way that's inconsistent with the values, but they seem to be getting on. So people use the, the list of values as one of very many inputs that they use to triangulate the way we do things around here. And the problem organizations have overall with culture is they assume it's the other way around. They assume you define the culture and that dictates behavior. Whereas actually you create the conditions in which behavior emerges and that behavior, the way we do things around here, is the culture. So this is the problem is people have a very um, inadequate model of where does culture fit in, in terms of behavior, performance and employee experience. It's interesting around, uh, there's been a few, another change I've seen over the last few years is the term culture fit to culture add. Um, and of course, I'm talking a lot of, of, to businesses about creating creating an inclusive environment for your, for your people, which is of course important. And actually, this idea of a, a culture, a set culture, which people need to fit into, that's actually quite uninclusive, isn't it? What do you think, Richard? Well, I think you've caught the paradox there. Yeah, I mean, so you're trying to create adaptive and innovative and inclusive and, and environments, and you're trying to add value by getting all these diverse thinkers in. And then you say, well, no, no, we all have to have shared values. So that that becomes a paradox you can't escape from. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think you, that, that you've really caught the, the, the biggest challenge that organizations that say uh, our shared values and our culture is, is the, 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 me the most meaningful value creating thing that we have at the same time saying, well, you, we need to get cognitive diversity and plurality from, from the workforce. You can't do both. And what about the, um, what about Richard, the, uh, the, Im uh, the impact of a business culture on a business's ability to innovate? Um, well, I mean, most organisations nowadays seem to have two separate kind of formal cultures. They, they'll do the business as usual culture and then they'll have some kind of innovation lab off on the side where they'll try and create these um, engineered, engineering type startup-y cultures on, on the side. I, I don't think that particularly works because those in the, in the, the side, uh, the innovation lab, don't really understand the pain and practices of those doing the, the, the big organisational stuff and they don't go in and solve their problems. They create something that's almost separate from, from the way the organisation runs and, and, and then tries to sell it into the organisation, which, of course, is incredibly resistant to, to, A, their methodologies and practices, and they see them as a bit strange. But then they're like, well, that solution doesn't get rid of any of our pain at all. So, so that's kind of the standard model. The best solution I've, I've seen was um, in uh, DBS, so, so the, the Singaporean bank where the instructions that they had of transformation gave his team were your one, the innovation team was your one job is to not to innovate. Your job is to go in and seek out problems within the organization and then work with the people to try and solve their problems. And out of that came all of the solutioning. Um, so that, that I think works incredibly well. You get those innovation teams, they engage with, with the, the people who are already suffering the toxicity and the, the gaps and, and all of this kind of thing and the, the pain. 
do the problem seeking and then you've got some incredible potential outcomes but i don't see enough organizations doing that kind of work i know it's jeff's it's jeff's area of expertise to try and create those environments but it's pretty rare what do you think jeff yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's back to this idea that we have to do a complete reframe around do, do you try and create culture or do you try and create the conditions that enable innovation and agility and adaptiveness to emerge? And therefore, as a consequence of those conditions, the culture emerges. And I mean, if you think about culture itself, it's, it's, it's inherently an organic living system kind of term. You know, I mean, it, it's either the culture of a community or... You know, when you were in um, biology class at school, you put stuff in a petri dish and you would culture it. You know, it's like so. There is something there about emergence that that we really need to understand. And part of the problem with organisations traditionally is they're mostly designed based on the idea that they're machines for producing dollars at the back end. And so somebody at the top comes up with a design. They, they people at the top make the decisions. People at the bottom do the actions. And no one's really joining up sense making in the middle. And so if you really want innovation on a consistent basis as opposed to like a one-off oh, we did amazing things last month but that was only once in the last five years if you want consistent innovation you have to get these three things really tightly coupled which is making sense of the world and what's possible making decisions about what to do and then taking action and often you have to do loop you know iterative loops of that in order to flush out so you know you, you make sense in a certain to, to a certain degree you, you make some decisions about what actions you're going to take. You take those actions, but you take those actions partly or in some cases largely to flush out better sense making because with the world continuously being more um, uncertain and unpredictable, you have to be connected into the world as it's evolving. And as Richard was saying, the way organizations have kind of bolted on an innovation lab and appointed a, a head of innovation. And then again, you know, senior people go, oh, We've got innovation covered now, guys, because we've got a department called innovation and we've got a chief innovation officer. What, what doesn't happen is it doesn't get the tendrils of that don't get into the body of the organization. And so you never really tap into the sense making that's going on in the body of the organization, which is where people are dealing with customers, where people are dealing with broken value creation processes, where you've got the diversity of employees from all these different generational cohorts. And unless you're able to tap into that sense making in an effective way, and the decisions you make and the actions you take won't be very innovative, they won't be creating new value in new ways. So Richard, what do you think it is that in fact is going to motivate and inspire the workforce? This is what we want to get to. We want to get to what, so if, if, if this isn't the way to go, what is the way to go? Uh, well, I think, I think the keywords, the two keywords, we've probably mentioned one of them a lot, adaptability. Um, and the other one is, is flexibility. And, and this is around the notion of, of we actually are digitally transforming the world and a digitally transformed world doesn't need to have the, the uh, concepts from 40, 50 years ago in order to get people uh, working well. Um, so it's quite interesting because when Jeff and I both talk about the problems of culture, we use the same words. When we talk about the future, Jeff will say future fit culture and I'll say networked behavioural environment. Um, and we're both talking about the same thing, but we're just coming from slightly different angles. And for me, for me, the network behavioural environment is we, we are now connected through the digital part of the organisation, not through the physical part. And we can work from absolutely anywhere. We can work from our bedrooms, we can work from our dining rooms, we can work from coffee shops, we can go into the office, we can go to a local co-working place. We can do all of this and we can, we can live a much more flexible life and, and, and do much more uh, adapt to the, to the requirements that we have. And it's about embedding that into the future. 
And then around that, you would have Jeff's concept of the future fit culture, where you're going to go, right, well, when you're in the organization, when you're doing this kind of talking, all of the, the, the sense making and, and the decision making and the, and the action taking are, are, are it's coupled deeply and, and closely together. So that, that when you're doing that vital value creating work, you know what to do, and you know why you're doing it, and you have all of the, the purpose and meaning coming out of those practices. So, so you're sort of looking at a redesign of what it means to work alone uh, and how to, how to really do that well, how to create masses of value when you're working by yourself, a redesign of working collaboratively and collectively. You know, when, when you're with other people, what, what, what does value creation look like and, and where does the meaning and purpose come out of those collaborations rather than sitting on a four, four hour video call waiting for it to be over because you're just like, well, I've got to say one word and, 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 and then I'm just listening to people. And then the final thing is how do you design for um, learning and growth? And by learning, you know, that, that's both at organisational and individual and team level and, and both for growth and for learning. How do, you, how do you actually look at where that value comes from? And this is about going beyond the organisational constraints and beginning to and bringing in all kinds of ideas about how we can do stuff better from the world out there. So you've got to become much more porous in your organisational boundaries at all sort of levels, at the, at the individual level where you're adaptive and flexible and work from anywhere, um, at the collective level where you're, you're, you're reducing the structures that make digital collaboration so painful and then you're reducing the boundaries to, to the rest of the world and trying to get ideas into the organization. Um, that in itself is going to create these emerging conditions that Jeff talks so eloquently about where, where you're looking at well okay we've created these conditions of emergence and out of that manifests something spectacular. Absolutely it's a great advice there. Jeff what do you, what do you think motivating and inspiring the workforce in 2022 what, what do we need to do yeah well i mean i think we need to understand what does motivate people and i mean a lot of the research that uh, has been around now for 50 years is very very clear that there are three things that motivate people it's autonomy competence and relatedness um many people will have read dan pink's sort of slight distortion is the word i would use uh, of that into autonomy mastery and purpose and the reason i say distortion is because it's the relatedness that is really, really super important in any organization. It's not just about, oh, I'm an individual here and I align with something that someone has said about purpose. It's do I actually feel as a human being that I relate to the organization? Do I feel I relate to my colleagues? Do I feel I relate to the folks in big big hats who make who make big decisions at the top? So those are the three things. And it's surprising, well, not surprising, but on one level, let's say it's surprising just how little that understanding has really deeply permeated organizational practice. We still have a lot of top-down hierarchical command and control, senior people who think their job is to make the decisions rather than create the conditions in which good sense-making, decision-making and action-taking is taking place all the time. So, so really it's these three, these three things, uh, you know, I don't think you need to look further than do people feel autonomy? Do they have a sense that they're doing something through choice and volition? It's what they want to be doing. Do they feel competent? Do they feel they have the skills? Do they feel they're increasing the skills that matter to them so that it feels meaningful work? And do they feel relatedness? Do they feel that the other people that they're part of the organisation with are people that they relate to and that together we're able to achieve more than we could achieve separately? 
Fantastic. And Jeff, what's, what's the final bit of advice, just to put a bow on it, that you give to businesses who perhaps are losing in this war for talent, which has been going on for 30 years or so, this war for talent, um, who are looking to run a business which actually retains its people? What advice would you give to business owners? Uh, the, the advice I would give to anyone is really to understand that the reason why people end up in organisations that feel like the rhetoric and the reality are, are, are distant from each other it's because people in the organization don't have this sense of autonomy and competence and, and relatedness. And the reason for that is because certain people say, well, okay, look, I'm, I'm the senior person here, so I'm the one who makes the decisions. They may not be in the best place to make the decision. The, the best place to make the decision is where the best sense-making is happening. So you've got people who hog decision-making. And in fact, one of the problems for us is it's so deeply embedded in the psyche that the idea that senior executives are the decision-makers. I mean, we use the words interchangeably. Then you've got the problem that certain people will hog sense-making because they say, well, like, I'm the expert on this. You know, I've got the, I've got the qualifications or, or you need to listen to me because I own this particular client relationship or you know, it's my department or what have you. And then you've got people who hog action taking, basically control it by holding onto purse strings usually. You know, there are people who say, no, you can't do that because we don't have the budget. So, so what happens is organizations constrain the ability to make sense, make decisions and take actions because certain people hog those, um, those capacities because it gives them a sense of power and agency. So understanding the dynamics of where that's happening in your organization and encouraging people to loosen off some of those controls and constraints a little. I mean, I don't mean to abandon it. I mean, that would be foolhardy, but just to recognize that this is what's constraining the organization in terms of its performance, in terms of the ability to create conditions where people feel autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And so each organization is unique. I mean, that's why these one size fits all solutions that big consulting firms like, because it's a great way of mobilizing large teams of junior consultants with very low risk. Um, they don't work because each organization is unique and that pattern of constraints that's going on inside the organization around sense-making, decision-making, action-taking is unique to each organization. So that's what you need to tackle, loosen off some of that and allow the conditions for emergence to, 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 um, to be there. Fantastic. And Richard, look, final top line advice from you, uh, for, from you for about what businesses should be doing if they want to keep the best people. What do you think? I mean, the, the, Jeff's done most of the, the work. I mean, the, the, the reason we work together is Jeff does all of this stuff on the culture and I, and I focus on the leadership. And for me, for me, the, you know, the development of, of leaders and, and, and managers from a behavioral perspective from day one, you know, this is part of your onboarding is, your, is you're already beginning to get behavioral training and behavioral understanding as part of your organizational life. So you can start creating these conditions from day one. Um, is is absolutely vital. It's very, very possible today as well. I mean, it is not difficult to do mass scale development um, with the current technologies we have and, and specifically how, the, how far they've progressed over the last two to three years. So, so you, you look at putting behavioral development at the center of organizational life. So everybody in the organization is part of the creation of these conditions which allows sense-making and, and decision-making and action-taking to, to tightly couple and to flourish. Fantastic. Well, look, gents, this has been really fascinating. I really appreciate all your insights. I'm sure after listening to this, people may want to reach out to you to find out a little bit more. Uh, Jeff, if they do, what's the best way for them to do so? 
Um, well, they can go via the EQ Lab website. Um, I'm presuming you'll put some links or something at the uh, in the show notes. Um, I'll send you my LinkedIn um, profile. That's a good place to go. Um, I do a weekly Substack post on Substack, um, which is at Jeff jeffmarlow.substack.com. Um, I'm going to provide those links or people can find that either via the EQ Lab website or via um, my LinkedIn profile. Fantastic. And Richard, what about you? Uh, largely the same as Jeff. EQ Lab website is, is I'm not quite as rigorous at posting something every week as Jeff is, but I do try and get a lot of stuff out on there. Um, LinkedIn profile. He's getting, on with writing, he's getting on with writing the book that we're writing together, yeah. and I'm producing <laughs> posts every week, which I hope will coalesce into my bit of the book. But yeah, we'll so I, I, I get to write all the really boring stuff and, 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 and proposals for, for interventions and things where he wanders off and does all the blog posts. But um, yeah, so the same, the same thing. The, uh, the EQ Lab website uh, and all my LinkedIn profile, which is, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, Dr. Richard Clayton. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're the easiest places to get hold of me. And when can we expect the book? Oh, well, it depends when oh. Jeff starts contributing. <laughs> don't, don't ask questions like that, Paul. You don't know us well enough yet. <laughs> all right, James. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate this. Thanks very much for being a part of Talent and Growth. Right. Absolute pleasure. Thanks. 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 Thanks